Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. This is episode 7, and this is also part 4 of the Diabetes Code by Jason Fung. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking about how not to treat type 2 diabetes. So Jason Fung begins this section by talking about two different diabetic trials. And I'm not going to go through the details of these trials, but I'm just going to mention the results. So they found that in the in these trials that the intensive insulin treatment had actually reduced cardiovascular disease by an astonishing 42%. And these two studies clearly established this paradigm of glucotoxicity, which is the idea that high blood, blood glucose is actually toxic to us and can cause end organ damage in type 1 diabetics. So there was a reduction in cardiovascular disease, but a lot of these patients also paid a price. So one of the side effects of these insulin treatment is, is hypoglycemic episodes, where essentially these, these these patients, when they get injected with insulin, their blood glucose is going to drop and it's going to cause uh, certain certain uh, side effects. And another side effects of this insulin treatment was also weight gain. And specifically, this weight gain was conscious, concentrated in the abdominal area. And I've mentioned before that central obesity was is a, is a known risk factor for future cardiovascular disease. So those were the two main side effects that this insulin treatment and insulin trial showed was hypoglycemia and also central obesity. But it did show a reduction in cardiovascular disease by 42% again. So this glucotoxicity paradigm, they thought it was established for both type 1 and type 2 diabetics. So he puts it here that this glucotoxicity paradigm, the idea that elevated blood glucose was the primary cause of end organ damage, was accepted for both type 1 and type 2 diabetics. The paradigm had yet had not yet been proven for type 2 di- diabetics, but it seemed only a matter of time. So really, this idea of glucotoxicity only pertained to type 1 diabetics, and type 2 diabetics is something completely different. So there is no really glucotoxicity happening in this type 2 diabetics. Uh, so we, we go on and talk about another tri- another study done called the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study. And researchers set out to determine two things about treatment with type 2 diabetes and insulin and in other drugs as well. So the first thing they tried to set out was whether intensive glucose control could reduce complications. And second, whether there was differences among the different medications. So this United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study had 4,000 newly diagnosed type 2 diabetics and they were either either given insulin, sulfonylureas, or metformin. These are the three drugs that were studied in this study. So again, just like in the other study, we, we saw that the, the, the patients that were treated with insulin, they gained more weight, and they also had hyper, hyperglycemic uh, react, reactions as well. So the end of the study, they found that 10 years of tight blood glucose control produced no cardiovascular benefits. So there was no fewer heart attacks or strokes in these type 2 diabetics. So he states here that 10 years of tight glucose control control produced no cardiovascular benefits. There was no fewer heart attacks or strokes. That discrepancy was shocking, but the story would get stranger still. So in essence, they found in type 2 diabetes, using insulin did not help in, in reducing cardiovascular benefits. Now let's talk about metformin. How did metformin do in this United Kingdom study? Well, it lowered their A1C from 8 to 7.4. And he puts here, 
Despite that mediocre blood glucose reduction, the cardiovascular results were spectacular. Metformin reduced diabetes-related death by a jaw-dropping 42% and the risk of heart attack by a whopping 39%, greatly outperforming the more powerful blood glucose-lowering agents. So metformin, as he puts here in the study, was jaw-dropping. It's reducing the risk of heart attack by, again, for, uh, uh, you know, 42%, or sorry, the risk of diabetes-related death by 42% and the risk of heart attack by 39%. So metformin like greatly outperformed the insulin, and he puts here that metformin could save lives where the others could not, but its benefit had little or nothing to do with its blood glucose-lowering effects. So the glucotoxicity paradigm proven in type 1 diabetics failed miserably in type, in type 2 diabetic, diabetics. So metformin, which is the first-line treatment for type 2 diabetes, greatly outperformed insulin. So why, why is it that, that metformin just straight-up outperformed insulin in this study and sulfonylureas in this study? So he puts here metformin, which does not raise insulin, does not cause obesity, and this was the crucial difference. So in other words, insulin drove central obesity in these patients, but metformin did not. And this was the big difference between, between the metformin and the insulin. So in the last paragraph, he puts here that in type 1 diabetics, blood insulin is low. So replacing insulin is logic. So that's very obvious. In type 2, blood insulin is high. So giving more insulin seems problematic. After all, giving more alcohol to an alcoholic is not a winning strategy. Using heat blankets on a heat stroke victim is not a winning strategy. Treating sunburn by getting more sun is not a winning strategy. And giving more insulin to someone with too much insulin is not a winning strategy. In other words, we are kind of adding fuel to the fire if we're giving insulin when the problem is already high insulin. Remember the distinction between type 1 and type 2? Type 1 diabetics have low to no insulin. Type 2 diabetics have a lot of insulin. So giving it more insulin, again, is like adding fuel to a fire. It's not, it's not helping. Logically, effectively treating type 2 diabetics requires an approach to lower both glucose and insulin, thereby minima- minimizing both glucotoxicity and also insulin toxicity. So we see metformin outperforming insulin, and insulin is not the answer. And uh, going forward, we talk about insulin and also atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease. So as early as 1949, animal studies demonstrated that insulin treatment causes early atherosclerosis, which is also known as, also called hardening of the arteries, which is a precursor to all the things like heart attacks, stroke, and peripheral vascular disease. Now, insulin has been known to facilitate every single step along this inflammatory pathway that progresses to atherosclerosis. So everything from initiation, inflammation, foam cell formation, fibrous plaque formation, and also the advanced lesion. And to make things even worse, fibrous plaques contain insulin receptors, and insulin stimulates the growth of these plaques, which again accelerates the atherosclerosis and substantially raises the risk of cardiovascular disease. So we're seeing here that insulin is actually driving atherosclerosis, and if we can lower this insulin, we can lessen our chance of getting atherosclerosis. So experimentally, these same studies showed that preventing the excess insulin could actually reverse the condition. So again, we see here, lower the insulin, lower the chances of atherosclerosis. Now let's talk about cancer. 
So diabetes, as well as obesity and prediabetes, increase the risk of many different kinds of cancers, including breast, colon, endometrial, kidney, and also bladder. Insulin, it's been, it's, this has been known for a long time. It's this hormone that has this pro-growth factor. So it can actually drive tumor growth in, in patients with cancer. And women with higher insulin levels carry actually a 2.4-fold higher risk of breast cancer. So he talks about this intimate link between insulin and cancer and how it can be re- reinforced with this specific example called P10. So I actually found a mistake in his book. He put here that P10 is an oncogene, but it is actually a tumor suppressive gene. So he puts here, the intimate link between insulin and cancer is reinforced by the discovery of a single mutation in the P10 oncogene that significantly increases the risk of cancer. So what's the connection? This mutation increases the insulin effect. So again, he put oncogene, but I'm sure he meant tumor suppressor gene. So P10 is this tumor suppressor gene, just like BRCA1 or P53 or RB, all these other tumor suppressor genes. And what it does is that it actually negatively regulates the PI3 kinase slash AKT, AKT pathway, which again has to do with insulin and uh, which again is a, a pro growth factor. So P10 actually negatively regulates this process. And when there's a mutation in this tumor suppressor gene, there can be growth of tumor cells, and that gives rise to certain cancers, especially breast. So we're all familiar with BRCA1, but P10 as well is associated with breast cancer. So it's simple to understand why high insulin levels should favor cancer cell growth. So first, insulin is a known hormonal growth factor. Second, cancer cells are highly metabolically active and need large supplies of glucose to proliferate. So insulin really increases the risk of cancer, and once cancer has been established, high blood glucose enables it to grow faster. So we're seeing this that insulin partakes in both cancer as well as atherosclerosis. So moving forward, we talk about, so we talked about insulin and how insulin is not the answer. Now we're going to be talking about oral hypoglycemics, which are also not the answer to treatment. So there are a lot of diabetic drugs, and they can be divided up into three different categories. The ones that make you gain weight, the ones that are weight neutral, and the ones that make you lose weight. And he demonstrates here how all these drugs, they are not the answer. So I'm going to start out by talking about the medications that make us gain weight. So we start with the sulfonylureas. So sulfonylureas are a class of drugs that stimulate the pancreas to produce more insulin which effectively help reduce blood sugar. So the way sulfonylureas work is, let's take, let's take a cell. So what it, what it does with the cell is that it will, it will close the potassium channel inside the cell. So think of a, take any cell, and you see that by closing off the potassium channel, you're creating a positive charge inside the cell. And this positive charge cause, causes the cell to depolarize, and eventually calcium will influx into the cell and that causes the release of insulin. That's the process by which sulfonylureas work and help secrete insulin. So in its, in its research of type 2 diabetics, the United Kingdom Prospective Study, which I mentioned earlier, demonstrates that intensive treatment with sulfonylurea class of drugs produce almost no benefit in controlling the long-term compliance of diabetes. So sulfonylureas, they don't work and 
further studies, they were kind of born out of concern of this sulfonorrhea study. And they saw that a 2012 review of more than 250,000 newly diagnosed type 2 diabetics in the Veteran Affairs database across the U.S. showed that starting treatment with sulfonorrheas instead of metformin carried a 21% higher risk of cardiovascular disease. So studies from the U.K. and elsewhere estimate that use of sulfonorrheas increased the risk of heart attack or death by 40-60%. to 60%. Furthermore, these risks increase in a dose-dependent manner. So sulfonorrheas are doing absolutely nothing to help us. Uh, they are stimulating insulin, but they're not, they're not lowering our mortality rate at all. So we see that drugs that promote insulin secretion are not working. Now let's take this, the second medication in this medication that causes weight gain. And these are the, it's a hard word to, pron- to pronounce, hard class, uh, TZDs or diazolidinedions. Uh, you can look up the word, it's, it's hard to pronounce, but sh- it's short for TZDs. And essentially these are the drugs that end in glitazone. So these drugs work by activating an enzyme called PPAR gamma. And when this enzyme gets activated, it helps increase the insulin sensitivity and also increases our adiponectin levels in, in our fat. So he puts here that these drugs bind to receptors in fat cells, making them more sensitive to insulin, thereby amplifying insulin's effect. So this is essentially is uh, you know stimulating insulin, uh, in, insulin sensitivity. But there are so many side effects to this, and in medical school, I remember the side effects by all the Fs. So they, they make you fat, uh, fluid retention, so edema, and heart failure. So in 2007, the influential New England Journal of Medicine reported that rosiglitazone unexpectedly increased the risk of heart attacks. So we see that, again, these TZD drugs are not working, and neither are the sulfonorrheas. So those are the two drugs that are causing weight gain. Now I'm going to go into the weight-neutral drugs. So medications that are weight-neutral. So he begins this section of the weight-neutral drugs by talking about the fountain of youth, I mean uh, metformin. Metformin uh, is, again, a weight-neutral drug, and it entered the, the British National Formulary in 1958, but the FDA did not approve it in the United States until 1994. So metformin does not actually raise insulin, and it doesn't cause obesity, and therefore does not worsen diabetes. So again, metformin sounds pretty good, uh, it's not raising, it's not raising our insulin levels, and the the real problem is that this this drug it's a miracle drug, and it's it's working by inhibiting hepatogluconeogenesis, and it's not raising our insulin levels. So, again, it's a it's a very powerful drug, and he puts it here that even though this is a powerful drug, it's not taking away this root cause of the illness. So, which is getting rid of the body's excess sugar. So that's why he puts it, again, as, as this medications that are weight neutral, but not essentially helping us. So moving on to the next drug, we talk about the D- DPP-4 inhibitors. So DT- DPP-4 inhibitors are this classes of drugs that inhibit the breakdown of glucagon- glucagon-like peptides. So in other words, this enzyme are designed to lower blood glucose by blocking the breakdown of incretins, or glucagon-like peptides, which are hormones released in the stomach that cause increased insulin secretion in response to food. So these are the drugs that end in gliptin. So 
saxagliptin, for example. So, however, neither were... So, he states here that neither were there any protective effects against cardiovascular disease. These medications effectively lowered blood glucose, but did not reduce heart attacks or strokes. Once again, the glucotoxicity paradigm was proven false. So, again, these DPP-4 inhibitors are not working. And let's move on to the medications that cause weight loss. So he begins the weight loss medications with the sodium glucose cotransporter inhibitors, or SGL2 inhibitors. And these are the drugs that end in flozin. So F-L-O-Z-I-N, so empagliflozin. And these drugs work by inhibiting the reabsorption of sodium and glucose in our proximal convoluted tubule in our nephron. So the nephron is the functional unit of our kidneys. And in the proximal part of the of the nephron, you get reabsorption of sodium and glucose. It's a co-transporter. And what happens is this drug blocks the uptake of sodium and glucose in our proximal convoluted tubule. And essentially, we end up peeing out the excess sodium and glucose. So the SGL2 inhibitors simultaneously lowered both insulin toxicity and glucotoxicity. And the results were nothing short of amazing. So the patients on... This drug, actually, they lost a lot of weight, and uh, it states here that reduced the risk of death by 38%. So the good news, it did not stop there. It reduced the risk of progression of kidney disease by almost 40%, and the need for dialysis by a stunning 55%. So the elusive cardiovascular and renal benefits that virtually every previous study had failed to deliver were finally found. So he's pretty happy with this drug, the, the flozin. SGL2 inhibitors. I like this drug as well. One of the side effects, however, is that it can create massive UTIs. So remember, you're peeing out a bunch of glucose, and this creates a nidus for certain yeast and bacterial infections to happen in our in our urinary tract. And it can also cause keto ketoacidosis as well. So we're getting a little closer and a, a little a little better when it comes to treatment of type two diabetics. Again, this is the weight loss section. And the last drug that causes the weight loss, there's a few more, there's two more. The second to last drug that is causing this weight loss are the alpha-glucosidase inhibitors. So if you've heard of the drug Acarbos, this is one of the oral diabetic medications that was introduced in the U.S. in 1996. And it blocks this enzyme called alpha-glucosidase and also alpha-amylase. So these two enzymes are essentially needed for digestion of carbohydrates. And this enzyme prevents these complex carbohydrates from breaking down into smaller glucose molecules. And when these glucose molecules aren't able to break down into smaller units, they cannot be absorbed in our body. So essentially, uh, we're not absorbing the carbohydrates that we're eating. And this is essentially lowering our blood glucose. And one of the side effects is bloating. And uh, it's not as powerful as some of the other drugs, but they work as well. So finally, the last drug class drug is called the glucagon-like peptides, or GLPs, and these are the drugs that end in glutide, so liraglutide, I'm sure you've seen a commercial for liraglutide, so glucagon-like peptides are these uh, diabetic medications that mimic the effect of incretin hormones. Now, they work by increasing the release of insulin, and they also slow down the motility of the stomach and also increase satiety. So, Incretins increase the insulin response to food, so blood glucose decreases after meals. And this transitory rise in insulin is not enough to cause weight gain. 
but incretins slow the movement of food through the stomach, causing satiety, decreasing food intake, and weight loss. It also accounts for the main side effects of nausea and vomiting. So, in other words, we're seeing that the drugs that make us lose weight are actually performing the best. The the alpha-glucosidase inhibitors, the SGL2 inhibitors, and glucagon-like peptide analogs. So, these three drugs that are causing weight loss are performing the best. And he talks about this trade-off between glucotoxicity and also insulin toxicity. So even though we're getting lower insulin levels, there's still this glucotoxicity going on. And if we're not, uh, it can happen the other way around too, where we we may be getting glucotoxicity from not enough insulin. So insulin is the problem and glucotoxicity is the problem. So these are both you know, problems going on. So metformin, again, and DPP-4 medications use mechanisms other than raising insulin to lower blood glucose, but they, they do not lower insulin either. So the result is neither weight gain nor weight loss. So again, reducing glucotoxicity while keeping insulin neutral produces minimal benefit. So essentially, we need to find ways that we can both lower our insulin as well as glucose. So that is why these diabetic drugs are not working. And essentially, he puts it here that never, nevertheless, these medications, while an effective, while an important step forward, are clearly not the answer. They do not reverse the cause of type 2 diabetes, which again is our diet. So that's again the, the section talking about all the drugs. And they're not working because they're not treating the root cause of type 2 diabetes. Then we go on to talk about different types of diet and also exercise. So the low-calorie, low-fat diet and all that. So in the early 2000s, there was a monumental task of recommending an option for type 2 diabetes. And this task was assigned to this man named Dr. Richard Kahn, who at that time was the chief medical and scientific officer of the American Diabetes Association. And people demanded an answer from him, like, what is the best diet to get rid of my diabetes? So what he did was to just give very like generic advice at that time, the early 2000s, to the public. And he states that eating a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet was the advice that he, he gave to these people. So this is wrong for many reasons, and we should look at the facts. So there's two main facts, and the first fact is that type 2 diabetes is char- characterized by high blood glucose, and the second fact is that refined carbohydrates raise blood glucose levels more than any other food. So again, this logic of eating a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet does not make any sense. Why would you be giving carbohydrates to the class of patients who need to lower their blood glucose levels if carbohydrates raise your blood glucose the most out of all macromolecules? So moving forward, the 2008 American Diabetes Association position statement on nutritional advised that dietary strategies including reduced calories and reduced intake of dietary fat can reduce the risk of developing diabetes and are therefore recommended. So again, this logic is hard to follow. Dietary fats, they do not raise blood glucose at all. I mean, even compared to to, to carbohydrates. So this is, uh, you know, this is going against co- the common sense that we shouldn't be giving patients high high carbohydrate diets if this is the thing that is spiking our blood glucose the most and causing the most insulin secretion. So this was that low fat era again back in the 2000s. 
Now, finally, let's talk about exercise. So, you may be wondering why exercise is in this how not to treat type 2 diabetes section. And I'll go ahead and read his words for it. So, with all the proven benefits of exercise, it may not surprise you that learning, learning that this is not a useful information. Why not? Because everybody already knows this. The benefits of exercise have been extolled relentlessly for the past 40 years. And there hasn't been a single person who has not already understood that exercise might help treat type 2 diabetes. And the main problem here is that is the non-compliance people, they don't like to exercise. And in studies, all the exercise programs that, that, that were in, in terms of uh, type 2 diabetes and weight loss, they produced substantially fewer benefits than expected. And he, he hypothesizes that this is for two main reasons. So the first reason is that exercise is actually known to stimulate our appetite. So this tendency to eat more after exercise reduces the expected weight loss that we should be seeing. So it's gonna, exercise is going to stimulate our appetite. And the second reason is that formal exercise programs tend to decrease non-exercise activity. So really think about uh, people that go to the gym. They think that just that one hour at the gym will pay off as their exercise. And for the rest of the day, they're doing absolutely nothing, no physical labor. They're sitting at their desk and uh, living a sedentary lifestyle. So that's really the second reason that exercise programs tend to tend to not work is that they, they think that I'm just going to exercise for one hour and that'll be good. So that's decreasing our non-exercise activity. So in the end, the main problem in type 2 diabetes is not caused by a lack of exercise. The fatty liver is the key to developing type 2 diabetes and you really can't exercise your liver to health. And reversing type 2 diabetes depends upon treating the root cause again of the disease which is dietary. So the diet is a problem it's not from the lack of exercise. It's not from, you know, these drugs are, these drugs are not going to help. It's really the dietary problem. So he gives us a great analogy to end off this section. So imagine that you turn on your bathroom faucet with full blast. The sink starts to fill up quickly as the drain is small. Widening, widening the drain is slightly, widening the drain slightly is not the solution because it does not address the underlying problem. The obvious solution is to turn off the faucet. In type 2 di- di- diabetics, a diet full of refined carbohydrates and sugar is filling our bodies quickly with glucose and fructose. Widening the drain by exercising is minimally effective. The obvious solution is to turn off the faucet. And that ends up leading, uh, leading him to the last section, which is how to effectively treat type 2 diabetics. So essentially, we need to not make the drain bigger, but just turn off the faucet. And again... This, this whole section was about how not to treat di- type 2 diabetes. So we don't treat t- type 2 diabetes by giving more insulin, which is the culprit. We don't treat it by giving all these drugs that cause you know, either weight gain or, or, or weight neutral or, or weight loss. The, the drugs, they're not working because they're not treating the root cause. And we see that exercise, even though it's beneficial, people aren't very compliant and it's stimulating our appetites. And we tend to just exercise for that short period. So we see these things are not working to treat type 2 diabetes. And this is the end of the section. And on the very last part, I'm going to be talking about how actually to treat type 2 diabetics. So again, I hope you enjoyed this section. The next part will be the last part, and it's going to be how to actually treat type 2 diabetes. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you listen again to part 5 of The Diabetes Code by Dr. Jason Fung.